This is The Culture Code with Kevin Cruz, founder and CEO of LeadX, the platform that helps you scale and sustain a high-performance culture. Dwayne, I didn't do you justice. For all the new folks who, I just always just assume everybody knows you, but for all the new folks, I'm delighted to have you here. Um, you're the Director of Sales Training Development at Hologic, about 7,000-ish employees, life science company, diagnostic testing, a leader in women's health. I, of course, am mm-hmm. Kevin Cruz, founder, CEO of LeadX. This is not a user group meeting. It's a community practice meeting, but we do hope you keep LeadX in mind for all of your leadership development needs. Dwayne, I got to tell you, so I'm staying in this place in San Jose, and now maybe the San Jose folks or the the Bay Area folks will, will know what I'm talking about. I'm in this apartment complex that's part of this like bubble community called Santana Row. Does anyone know Santana Row? <laughs> Light up the chat if you've heard of this. This is like a Disneyland. It's like outside my door <laughs> is 30 high-end restaurants and bars with then retail oh, wow. malls of like, uh, well, they got a Tesla store, a Toomey store, a all this crazy stuff going on. Evan, you have just done something strange showing us your desktop. We want those <laughs> slides to come back if possible. It's so clean, Dwayne. I'm not making this up. So I'm going outside at seven in the morning to get my steps in through this little artificial community. There's nobody mm-hmm. out there except me and the workers. And there's people mopping the sidewalks. Like the way I would mop my kitchen floor, they're mopping the sidewalks. The I've sidewalk. never seen anything like wow. it. It's totally fake commercial capitalism, and I love it, Dwayne. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm all about it. It is so crazy. I mean, I don't really want to live here the rest of my life. On a good note, though, because when I think of what I just said, all Disneyland, diversity is usually not a high point. But here, it's like, it's really cool. Like, all ages, genders, racial profile, there's everybody, even all kinds of dogs, like everybody's mixed. It's like a, it's like one of those McDonald's commercials where everybody's all smiling and with racial harmony eating their cheeseburgers. This place is insane. I mean, it's like weird. It's just really weird. So next time you're doing MMA, I'll come out and we'll like walk Santana Row and get some shopping and eating in. I'll help you select your Tesla. Well, hey, I'm not sticking around for the aftermath the after party, but I may have already made a move on that, my friend. Well, no, you have a charger. You bought the freaking charger. Now you need to buy the car. I did step two. We won't get into it, but I will tell anyone who's been thinking about Tesla, and I was on the fence for a long time. Tesla has cut their prices 25% since January 1st. So let's Mm -hmm. just hypothetically say we're looking at a Model S what was $100,000 is now $75,000. It's insane. Like, and people who bought Tesla, you know, seven months ago aren't too happy about the yeah. sudden depreciation, but it's crazy yes. times in the EV world. It is just crazy times. You'll probably be like me. I'm in a chat group. So uh, there's a chat group, a Tesla chat group of St. Louis, if you will. So they've been bickering about this because there's a large number of individuals who purchased and now it's just like, you know, basically destroyed the value of their car. So yeah, uh, you yeah. were happy about it, but not the people in my chat group. Yeah. And probably six months from now, I'll be unhappy with them because they will have dropped another uh, lots of percentage uh, points. Anyway, yeah. and I'm appreciating the chats. You know, people are laughing at my comments. They're saying Santana was like Rodeo Drive of San Jose. Evan, I've been vamping enough. I think we gave people time to get into this room. Let's advance through some slides quickly before we then introduce our guest. And 
First, I just want to remind everyone, you know, we teased it and soft launched last month that in addition to the new Leadership Development Magazine we kicked off, we've now launched the Culture Code podcast, which you can find and wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast. And I do have a favor of people. We do the magazine. We do this monthly meeting. We send out free books. We're doing Culture Code. And we say it's all for free. It isn't really for free. It's costing me about $300,000 a year to give all of you this stuff. So instead of saying it's free, how about this? Hey, if you're already a LeadX client, you've done enough. Thank you very much. If you're not, maybe go check out Culture Code Podcast. Pick an episode on Spotify. Maybe it's the new one, the unique way that Pinterest scales and sustains its culture. Maybe how the chief people officer of Topdoll scales their culture how Viva drives culture on its path to 10,000 employees. Pick an episode, listen to a few minutes of it, and then share it on LinkedIn. Just tell people what you thought of the episode so more people can discover the culture code as a new podcast. Evan, let's move on from this to catch up on some time. Oh, but of course, we've got to share every month. So if you're new to this meeting, welcome. And now you're part of the family. Every month we give away a new asset. We put something into what we call the vault, digital vault. This month, we've got a coaching plan workbook, a 12-week, 12-step plan for developing a growth mindset. And the reason why I think you might be interested in this is two ways. One, you can just give it free intellectual property to all of your employees. You can stick it up on your learning management system, whatever you want. It's our gift to you. But you also might just want to look at the design and it might inspire some efforts of your own. Evan, if we can go to the next screen, I want to show an sample. So you'll see at the top here, we've got 12 actions in 12 weeks. This is week four. It's a micro-learning activity. Read the book summary, Mindset by Carol Dweck. And by the way, you could just click in this PDF and it will launch a free book summary of, of Mindset. And then the next example I have here, this happens to be from week eight. So if you had an executive coach working on growth mindset, what might they suggest you do or what might they ask you? So this is an example where embedded in here is a fillable PDF, you know, asking you questions. What types of topics or activities trigger your fixed mindset? When does your fixed mindset kick in? When? The timing. Example, when I'm hungry, that would be mine. I need a Snickers bar. Or what triggers your fixed mindset? Your parents, maybe, or your spouse or your boss. And if we can go to one more slide, Evan's doing great because he's also admitting people while he's driving my slides. How to reframe mistakes in your past. So it's not just a book about growth mindset. It's weekly activities and micro actions to develop your growth mindset. So all you got to do, if you want a copy of the PDF, just type in the chat. I told you you wanted to warm up those fingers. Say, give it to me. I want it. Give me growth. Give me free stuff. Give me the vault. I want in. Any of those will work. And then next week, we'll email you a PDF and you can share it with your colleagues. And on that note, we're running a few minutes behind. He's worth the wait. I've known him for a long time. In fact, we shared uh, book agents and just general mindset. He is a former business school professor. He's been featured in, among many places, the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, even been on CBS this morning. I'm envious of that one. Many other places. He speaks all around the world, keynotes routinely. His previous books include, I love this one, Under New Management, and then Leading From Anywhere. That book, by the way, is the number one book I recommend for remote leadership, remote management, leading remote teams. So you guys have to get that one. 
That one I'm not sending a free copy to, but I am sending you, all of you get a free copy of Best Team Ever, his new book, The Surprising Science of High-Performing Teams, Dr. David Berkus. David, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. You know, I was going on so many tangents, just vamping with Dwayne. I was afraid you were going to bail out and be like, what is this thing I just joined? I'm in the wrong meeting. I actually have to pick a little bit of a fight with one thing you did with Dwayne, if that's all right. (laughs) Dwayne, the gym in uh, San Jose is called American Kickboxing Academy. That's Daniel Cormier, formerly Dave Camarillo, that crew. ATT is based in Miami, Florida. They're also an amazing school, an amazing gym. But I just... As an ATT member, I got my black belt in jujitsu from Hanato Tavares, who was an ATT member, etc. I just had a note on that one, but there hey, you go. It. Not to confuse with you guys from Florida. My apologies. You're right. <laughs> David, I love this. And I think the next time we have you on, we're going to just record this in an octagon. And then you and yeah. Dwayne can like, you know, <laughs> roll around a little bit. I think that's great. Let's do it. No, I was at the, I was at the gym earlier today. Actually, I'm actually regretting it because I'm at a standing desk and I kind of tweaked my knee today. Cool. But well, that's all right. And this is actually very cool because like everyone's going to get a copy of your book, so we're here to celebrate it. But it's a great chance for people to get to know you, which is great for everyone. And I didn't know that about you know you're into jujitsu. My son, so he's 20, turns 20 this weekend, sophomore in college. He just started this summer, so he's only been going for uh, like three months. And already, like, he loves it. And the, I regret that I didn't get involved in it. I mean, just from a confidence level, it's just like a psychology, not just self-defense or sport. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, no, it's great. So I've trained, competed, now coached, because, you know, I'm over 40, so we don't really compete as often anymore (laughs) in it. And it's a beautiful martial art. It's a beautiful addiction. I mean, you were talking about growth mindset earlier in that coaching piece. We have a saying, I'm sure he's heard it if he's gotten ready for his first competition. Everywhere in the sport, before you go into competition, we try and remind people the mindset we take in is like, don't fear the outcome because your options in a competition are either win or learn. Mm. Win or learn. That's it. You lose. Sure. You might get tapped out or what have you, but we're going to take that. We're going to go back to the gym. We're going to figure out why, and you're going to learn from that. So that's not really a loss. The only way you lose is if you're so arrogant or so close-minded enough to not extract lessons from that loss because failure is inevitable, but learning is a choice. And that's something we try and emphasize in the martial art all the time that I, truthfully, I wish would cross over into the organizational yeah. world far more often. I think you said that so well, because that's what I learned from him is from, and I think he got lucky he was going to a good gym where I mean, it was his first day there. And half the time he was rolling with people mm-hmm. who were, you know, up the purple belts and stuff. And he said, I tapped out 20 times in like in less than 20 minutes, but that's just part of it. That's just an mm-hmm. expected thing. Like that's how you're going to learn and grow. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Not, that's exactly right. Now, David, listen, we're here to talk about your book and um, I've shared this with you in the past. So there's Yourself and a, another author, thinker, Dan Pontefract, who I think the three of us, we kind of have similar mindsets when it comes to people stuff, culture stuff, leadership. So I just always love your work. And I also love the style because your stuff is so practical and actionable, which is if people aren't familiar with your previous books, they're going to see it in Best Team Ever. And then, of course, what is great is that you're obviously available for keynotes and speeches and things to kind of kick things off in motivation. We've got, you know, a room full of uh, trainers here, leadership development folks. So I think there's lots of ways this can apply. We're not going to go deep in the book, but for people, you know, who haven't gotten their copy yet, you talk about, I mean, a high level, like three big keys in this book you talk about are common understanding, three keys to best team ever. You need common understanding, psychological safety, pro-social purpose, 
Now, we can't go deep into each of these, but let's talk about each one a little bit. So common understanding, tell us what you mean by that and maybe one or two things we can do to get better at it. Yeah, no, awesome, happy to. So those are sort of, I call them the three elements of the best team ever, great team culture, et cetera. And there really is a distillation of a lot of different research here, but all of it focuses on the team level because my sort of post-pandemic lesson is that engagement and development and learning, et cetera, for most people in, in organizational life these days, has to happen at the team level, right? We're the L&D professionals, but like, it's not our job. It's our job to empower leaders at all levels to then empower their team, right? So we have to be thinking at this team level. So common understanding is kind of my term. It takes a bunch of different research. It's, it's my attempt to synthesize a bunch of different research. A lot of it is what we might call role clarity in the HR world and the learning and development world. So do people know what's expected of them? Do they feel like they've been adequately trained to do it? Do they know how their work fits into the work of other teams? And this is like, we're in football season, so I can say this again. This is blocking and tackling, right? This is the basics. But the reason I call it common understanding is that you also have to have a commonly held understanding of each other. So there's clarity of role and there's clarity of task, but then there's also clarity of people. A lot of times when I say that, people think, yeah, and personality tests and this sort of thing, and that's part of it, but it's really about work preferences, right? It's really, we need to know, for example, we need to know who the people are that are going to write the long emails because they think and process in text and the people that are going to want to just jump on a phone call for five minutes and hash it out. Neither of those is wrong, but a team works better together when they stop trying to force each other to communicate and collaborate the way I would prefer. And we start understanding and having what I call empathy with each other on those different work preferences so we can kind of come up with that. So common understanding is really clarity mixed with empathy. I know what's expected of me. I know what to expect of the other people, but I also know what to expect of their behavior because mm -hmm. I know enough about them and their preferences and their personalities. And I respect all of that enough. And that is really the difference, that empathy piece, Anita Williams-Woolley in the research calls collective intelligence, right? That's really the ability to achieve synergy on a team and have a team that is smarter than just the average. That's what we're really going for. You need that clarity of role to begin with, but a great team, a high-performing team, almost always takes it to that other level and has some understanding of how each other are different and how we can use those differences to actually move the team forward. One of the only videos I've done that continues to have a life for a long time, like I've recorded before I had gray hair, was about how to create your own, like working with me manual, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. And um, Evan, maybe at, towards the end of this meeting, we can drop a link to that. It's on YouTube somewhere. And and yet what I think people still struggle with is even if everybody on your team goes through and does some personality assessments and I'm energetic in the morning and not in the afternoon or all those preferences, too often it's like a one-time activity and then everyone yeah. kind of forgets about it. But do you have thoughts on that kind of like working about me or what's the best way yeah. to kind of document or work in that way? I love manuals of me for gaining that empathy, right? When I work directly with inside of organizations, we use kind of a, a simple four question version. I now I wish I would have seen your video, but I use fill in four fill in the blanks. I'm at my best when blank. I'm at my worst when you can count on me to blank. And what I need from the team is blank, right? So we have strengths and weaknesses and also kind of how I'm going to support the team and how the team can support me. And those are great. I love the conversation. Ideally, you take those documents and you put them in a place where everybody can get at them. But the thing I think works best is after that, about a couple of weeks later, we transition into, and this works well for project teams or for long-term teams that are going to be together under the same leader for a time. 
we move into kind of a working agreement stage, which is where we actually have the conversation about what our group norms are going to be. Oh, I saw it in the chat. So it's, I'm at my best when, I'm at my worst when, you can count on me too, and what I need from you is. Just fill in the blanks on all of those. And then we go into a working agreement. And a working agreement is like a team-wide manual of me. So this is, let's actually have the conversation. What's a reasonable amount of time to schedule meetings for? Do we want to go 30 and 60? Do we want to go 25, 55? What are valid reasons to call a meeting? A lot of times we call a meeting because we call a meeting every Monday. And I don't know if that's a valid reason or not, right? How do we want to give each other feedback? How do we want to make requests for help? right? Just what tools do we want to use and what are our rules for using them? I can lower the temperature on a lot of teams just by getting some norms around what time of day we're going to send email messages, right? And that's one potential place. But a lot of times conflict on a team happens when people have assumptions, taken for granted assumptions about how other people on their team are supposed to act. And then somebody violates that assumption that I made of you that you never even knew about. How dare you violate that, right? <laughs> right? And we get this sort of weird tension because we feel like, oh, people just aren't doing it right. They're doing it right for them. We just need to actually have that conversation. So I love manuals of me. I just tend to go next step afterwards. A couple of weeks later, after we've had time to process everybody's differences, we move into great. Now that we know each other's strengths and weaknesses and work preferences, Let's create some group norms. And this isn't, this isn't a permanent thing. Usually we do this for 60 or 90 days and then we revisit and see what norms we want to rewrite and what have you. But it's great to just have that conversation, not about what we need to work on, but how we're going to work together. David, first of all, I love with this answer and you can see from the comments, it's so specific, so actionable. And this is what everyone's going to see from your books. It's like, oh, this is stuff I'm going to use on Monday. This is gonna, I'm going to use this within 24 hours with my team. And- the idea of norms, the way you described it, I'm going back to your book, Leading From Anywhere. And again, maybe we can drop a link right to Amazon to make that easy for people. That was when it really, you taught me and it lit up like, okay, it was always a good idea to have team norms, but you can get away with not really having them when we're all sitting next to each other all day long. Wow. In this new world of work, team norms are just dramatically impactful in terms of some of these things you know, reasonable work hours, overlap hours, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just, again, want to applaud you for that effort. What about when we talk about psychological safety? I think at this point, it's not a brand new term to people, but what are some of your suggestions in this area? Yeah. So two things that really stood out when I was doing the research on this. So first of all, no one in this community, there's no grand revelation on the importance of psychological safety for this community, right? You remember Project Aristotle, you know Amy Edmund's <laughs> work. We don't need to reemphasize that. Two things I found were really interesting, which is a study that I don't think got enough media attention from Amy Edmondson and uh, Heinrich Brenson around diversity, particularly in pharmaceutical research teams, actually. So I think this study is awesome for that reason, right? Yeah. But one of the things they found is that diversity is great. We often say diversity is our strength, but psychological safety actually modifies that relationship, right? In other words, diversity without safety can be anarchy, right? Diversity without establishing a sense of psychological safety either leads to people just being frustrated with each other all the time because they're so different or everyone who brings the benefit of different not feeling safe enough to share their perspectives. And either one is sort of a recipe for disaster, right? So I get asked this question a lot. Well, where is the role? What's the role of diversity in teams? And how come that's not in your book, et cetera? It is. It's there because unless we do the work of psychological safety, then maybe there's a certain point where we probably shouldn't proceed past it, right? Because diversity is great, but diversity needs that psychological safety to right. actually be a win. And you see it in the research. Diverse teams with psychological safety 
outperform all others. But diverse teams without psychological safety actually underperform even homogenous teams that have that sense of psychological safety. So this really, and this is why I think the conversation shifted to belonging a lot now. That's what right? I was thinking, yeah. It's because of that realization. The other big thing I noticed in the research that I don't think got enough play when we talk about Amy's work or when Project Aristotle came out, et cetera, is that Amy really emphasizes that psychological safety is two things. It is not synonymous with trust. Psychological safety doesn't mean just we need to build trust on the team. It's a climate of mutual trust and respect. And those are two different things. I have to trust the team in order to share my crazy idea or admit my failing or speak up because I disagree. But after I step out and take that interpersonal risk, if I don't feel respected by the team or the leader, if I don't feel like they actually heard me, if I feel like they shot me down right away, that'll never work here. We don't have the budget for it, et cetera. If I don't feel respected, guess what happens to my level of trust? Just plummets. Yeah. Right. So it's this ongoing cycle of people building trust, taking interpersonal risk, feeling respected, trust increases, trust increases, trust, or it decreases. It's a virtuous or a vicious cycle, your choice. And so I think those are kind of the two big areas where even though we know this term psych safety, a lot of organizations aren't looking deeply enough into those two issues, which is one, okay, we're building um, diversity, we're focused on equity and inclusion, but that means we need to teach people how to create psychologically safe environments. And two, doing that means teaching leaders how to respond respectfully, even to ideas they disagree with, even to ideas they might feel threatened by. My number one question when I work with leaders one-on-one -on -one to judge their psychological safety is, when was the last time someone on your team disagreed with you publicly? If it's been a while, we have a problem. If it hasn't, that's fine, but let's talk about it and how you handled it. But you can learn an awful lot about a team just by asking that question. Now, this is incredible stuff, and we only have a couple of minutes of your time, but hit us quickly with the third, um, pro-social purpose. And David, this shows that like why you're Dr. David Burkus and I'm just Kevin Cruz. I just would have said purpose. What do you mean pro-social purpose and how do we do it? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't have to argue with anybody, especially this community, that purpose is important, that people want more meaning and purpose in their work. The thing that I found when I really dove into the research is that I think we need that adjective in front or is it an ad, whatever it is, a modifier in front of pro-social, <laughs> which is because people, when you look at a lot of the research on how people feel meaning and how they feel purpose at work, it is not how well I feel like my job correlates to the mission statement of the organization. That's a why statement, why we do what we do. And that's great. And you need that. But most people individually and most teams feel a sense of purpose and meaning when they know who as in who is served by the work that we're doing? How does our work specifically benefit? Maybe it's external customers or stakeholders. Maybe it's just somebody inside the organization who when we do a good job, it empowers them to do a good job. But we as humans, that's how we evolved. That's how we were designed. We're tribal social creatures. Maybe it's Dunbar's number of 150, maybe it's slightly larger, but we judge our impact on the world based on who we see impacted by our work. And so not only from an individual motivation standpoint do we see that, but we actually see increases in what are sometimes called organizational citizenship behaviors or pro-social behaviors. Let's just call them teamwork behaviors. Mm -hmm. When teams have that collective sense of if we do a great job, here is who specifically, sometimes names, sometimes just knowledge of a certain community group or what have you. But when we know who we work together better too, because we put we over me more often, we put their needs over our own more often, and we're more likely to actually function like a high-performing team. Ross in the chat just says, how do you define respect, you know, quote unquote? Yeah, my definition for the purpose of the book is just whether or not people feel like their ideas when they take that risk, whether or not they feel like it was heard and considered, right? 
So it's not just sort of the absence of uncivil behaviors or what have you. It's not just sort of that you're constantly praising that person or what have you. It's in those moments when people take an interpersonal risk. Do they feel like you held space open for them to do that? Or did you shut down that immediately? People often feel disrespected because they summoned a lot of the courage to speak up because they disagree or share that crazy idea. And if it gets shut down immediately instead of heard and considered, you don't have to agree with it. Right. But you do have to give them time to make their case. And you do have to sort of praise out the points that are good about it. And then, you know, if you want to have that larger conversation, we end up going with a different idea. That's great. But I think for a lot of organizations and we do this accidentally, a lot of leaders don't even know that they're causing a feeling of disrespect because they think, oh, I'm just trying to be efficient. We only have so much time. We got to move on to this next idea, et cetera. But no, how you respond when people take that risk. So I just kind of very simply define it as how well you're making sure your people feel heard when they take that interpersonal risk. I love it. David, I know uh, we have to let you go, but whenever I catch up with you, especially around a new book, uh, I think you usually tell me that like you're not going to do any more books or you haven't recovered yet, but then you always have another book. So, I mean, what's the next book going to be on? Ah, uh, Kevin, I don't know if I'm going to ever do another book ever <laughs> again. No, <laughs> I will tell you um, the thing that I'm most fascinated with right now is that trust risk respect cycle of psychological safety that we were talking about, because I think there's a lot that's spoken about psychological safety. And then we in organizations do a lot to build trust among people, but we don't train people on what respectful and civil behavior looks like when someone else is being vulnerable. And I think we accidentally step on our own feet when we're trying to build psychological safety because we think it's just about building trust and not about teaching that other respect thing. So there, there might be something there, but I can't promise you anything as of yet. <laughs> that sounds good. I want to remind everyone you're going to get a copy in the mail, a hard copy of Best Team Ever, assuming you gave us your shipping address when you signed up for the community. If you aren't sure if you did or if you've moved and want to update your mailing address, send an email to debbie at leadx.org. Evan will drop that in the chat so we can make sure you get a copy of the book. And of course, sign up for David's newsletter, follow him everywhere, get his other books and um, and bring him to, uh, to your next meeting. David, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Evan, I think on that note, we're going to let people go into a breakout room here in a minute. And uh, for the new family members, so this is going to be a 20-minute session. The goal is really just to meet some peers and deepen your network. Good things to remember. Share the time. Be curious. Feel free to go off topic. This is just a starter topic to get you something to sink your teeth in. How do you foster psychological safety in your organizations right now? Do you offer training on the topic or is it more of a subtle approach? In many organizations, it's part of employee engagement or pulse surveys, you know, measuring uh, psych safety. But there's a starter question and Evan's going to send all of you out and then pull you back, in which case we're going to hear from the fabulous Bria Martin. Unfortunately, I have to dash off to a meeting, so I'm going to be watching the recording and following up uh, after that. So it's good to see everyone, however briefly. Dwayne, thanks and good luck with the rest of the session. You got it, brother. All right. Thank you. Evan, let's send them out. See the rooms filling up. Let's go ahead and move into the case example here. This is our spotlight of the month. It's my pleasure to introduce the Vice President of Culture and Organizational Strategy at Ultragenics, Bria Martin. Bria, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I know we were exchanging emails a bit, and you had mentioned that you were at Burning Man. And I know I read some articles about Burning Man, specifically 
that people were maybe stuck in the rain. Do you want to talk a bit about how Burning Man was and how you got back? Yeah, it was crazy. So sort of first time and was so excited to see the art and the whole, I feel like an anthropologist watching how communities and people came together and how they structured things. And then, yeah, so then we were supposed to leave Saturday and realize that that wasn't happening. Our RV was going to be completely stuck. So it was like embracing that patience. And then we had a Hail Mary attempt um, on Sunday morning where we were able to get out miraculously with some insane mud navigational skills and getting out and checking things out. And there was like a, a window in the weather. It was one of those experiences where I kind of, of course, took a step back and thought about company culture as we do, right, with these things. And the thing that I I noticed was these two dualities of what people were holding there as a principle, which were that worked beautifully together. And one was this sense of radical self-reliance, like make sure you have enough food and water, conserve your resources, be able to be okay on your own for the next several days with this and look out for your community, look out for your fellow humans. If you have something to share, share it, take care of each other. And it was this combination of these two things. And I I was thinking about reflecting and and talking to people at work when I came back, when everyone's like, you're back. And I said, I know, I didn't think I was going to get back. It was kind of a miracle. But we had practiced that radical self-reliance and figuring out a path while we were giving people food and water and whatever we could and helping people navigate or get their cars unstuck. Yeah. So it just made me think about, you know, if you bring that to a company culture, you know, those two things, how they work in really incredible harmony together in a really supportive way that nourishes the whole and the individual. So, but I got out safely. I had four kids to get back to, you know, when, you, when that mom yeah. <laughs> comes in, like you were not separating me from my children. Just to back up for everyone here a bit, can you just talk about Ultragenics, what you do, maybe how big you are, things like that? So Ultragenics is a rare disease biopharma. And um, I've been there for about eight years. It started when 100 people and now we're 1,300 people globally. So we work on just the worst rare diseases, genetic diseases that are super debilitating. And we have a really, we have five products and we've got a rich pipeline and we're very purpose-driven. We have a CEO founder whose mission in life is to help as many rare disease patients as possible. And rare disease patients make up more than AIDS and cancer patients worldwide combined, but there's 7,000 rare diseases. So most of them are not treated. So because they have these small patient populations, it's how do you get treatments to more patients and take the cost of the drug down? And it's a very intricate thing, but I'm it's a really incredible organization. And they asked me to write my job description and do what I do there. So I was really grateful for a company that basically gave me carte blanche to prioritize people and culture and leadership and the work that I do. So that's why I've been there for eight years. I'd never been in-house. Yeah. I was a management consultant before that, but now I'm like, oh, this inside stuff is, this is good. I like this. I took a read of uh, the article that uh, you did with Kevin. And uh, I love your explanation of the infinity symbol, you know, and the duality of action and connection. And, you know, I would just love to hear more about that from you in terms of where did that come from? What are your thoughts and how do you actually apply it? In theory, it sounds good. And I I love how that works, but how do you actually apply that? So action connection, and it's interesting, I've been playing with new language around it that's been really Mm -hmm. resonating with with people in my organization and other folks I've spoken with. But if you think about an infinity symbol, right? You know, and it's this, you know, consistent infinite flow. And on one side, you have what I would call connection, which I'm now actually calling to soul. And soul are as the like the four C's. It's community, it's compassion, it's collaboration, mm-hmm. it's creativity, mm-hmm. right? So what some people might call the softer stuff, 
This is the soul of a leader, of an individual, of a culture, of a business. And on the other side, you have the action-oriented qualities, which I call the four A's. That's the fire. And that is ambition, achievement, acceleration, accountability, right? These are the things that are needed to get things done, to advance things. And I think so often and why this came to me is I feel like when I was raised in the working world as I was, it was all about the fire. It was all about action. It was all about Mm -hmm. achievement. And, but in my personal life, I was all about the soul and I was having a really hard time I feeling like I was a different person at work than I was in my real life. And then, you know, skip ahead. I had my first child nine years ago and it was like, oh, I can't do this either or thing. I'm going to try to do both and I'm going to see what happens. And I found a way to really balance my action connection, which for me, um, what dialing up my soul, because I had a lot of fire, uh, fire was not a problem, um, but I needed to dial up the soul piece, these connective qualities in the way that I led in the way that I worked. And what I found was I was able to do more in less time. I was able to balance the mother part of myself and identity with my work identity. And so when I had this role at Ultragenics, I thought, well, why don't I just see if I can make this part of the way that we lead and part of our culture and our strategy and how we do things. And I was really blown away by the results, both for the business, the culture, the engagement scores. And so in practice, what it looks like is is you're constantly, it's just this like looking at this balance of we have this great vision, we have this great strategy, but how are we going to engage people along with it? How are we going to create a culture that brings it to life? How are we going to nurture and support the growth of our people while asking them to stretch and grow to achieve these audacious goals? And so with every all company meeting, with every offsite, with every employee development program, with every coaching session, we're always looking, my team and I are looking at that balance and trying to fine tune that and paying attention to, I think there's more fire here. How do we bring more soul? Or there's actually mm-hmm. too much soul here. We need to bring that fire. How do we get this team really firing on all cylinders and working together? So it has become a way for us to sort of diagnose what might be going on and then provide what's needed to get that team or those you know group of individuals or leaders where they need to go. It's been fun to play with and it's been really inspiring to see what it's done for some people. Some leaders I've seen that were told that they were the fieriest of the fiery that had no soul are now some of the most vulnerable, beautiful, wonderful leaders, you know, that are showing up in this incredible way. And same, the leaders who had a lot of soul, but were told to sort of dim that soul, just be about fire. They've been able to bring that soul to their work. And it's been incredible to see them inspire people. And then they actually feel like they can be their authentic selves. Yeah. So that's a little, little bit about that. I like that. That reminds me of the whole thought of um, inside out coaching in the beginning, the faith, fire and focus. And the whole concept is there's inside the wheel, there's the three axes. And if one is low, kind of the wheel kind of clunks along. Right. So how do you constantly balance? So I like uh, the A's and the uh, the C's, if you will. I like that a lot. When it comes to leadership development, I think like one of the things that really struck me when I read through this piece was the metrics that you shared, your success metrics. So I'll read off a few of those. So for example, 78% of Bria's first three emerging leader cohorts were promoted within one year of completing the program. They maintained a high engagement score of 86% in 2022, and 25% of their new hires came through their employee referral program. So I thought all of those were very impressive. And so I guess my question is, How are you developing those emerging and first-line leaders? What does that look like? Yeah. 
It's a great question. So there's multiple kind of ways. We have our sort of frontline manager, people manager program that has, and it's, and all these are required and, you know, we've asked people to prioritize it, you know, and so that's going to include something like an insights, personality, working style assessment, and also just how to provide, you know, feedback that is compassionate while holding folks accountable. That's clear and direct, right? All the great things we've seen from Brene Brown in this one. And then it also goes into really coaching people and developing people. What does that look like to create an environment of learning and growth? So that's like all frontline managers get that. And then for anyone that's at the director, you know, senior director level, there is a leadership development program where we really double click in the more awareness, compassion building, more nuanced because they're a little bit more of a senior population. We really reinforce these concepts and look at that with that population. And then we actually are going to be rolling out an executive ed, ed development program because we're doing this leadership development program for more senior folks. And again, realizing that we actually need to now really build them to help them be C-suite leaders, right? And right. so we're now going to have a more robust program that's going to have business simulations, multipliers, a bunch of other content in there. And then the other thing we have is a high potential program. And that was like this quote that you, or the, the data that you shared from that 78% went on to be promoted within a year. And that was really born of, we need to build that next bench because what was happening is all of our, shocker, all of our great talent was being recruited by these other companies for bigger roles and titles. And we said, no, like we need to have them stay here and grow their careers here. So this program was amazing because it actually put them through, they get coaching um, and one-on-one mentorship with executives and senior leaders. There is, you know, other development programs customized for them with business simulations, executive roundtables, and it's a small cohort of about 30 people. So it's actually feels really intimate. And that's been amazing because we've also given them special projects and assignments and to see this group come together. And it's a very, we really focus on diversity with this group as well. And to see what's happened with their careers over the last five years, it's just been incredible. So for us, those are the, some of the things we're, we're doing to focus on leaders and managers. We also during pandemic rolled out a lot of tools for how to manage people remotely, how to create connection, resilience, energy management, So we just gave them an array of tools and resources to support them because we found that some of the basics in pandemic, which I'm sure a lot of us live, you know, we've lived through this, they didn't have, like, I don't know how to now have meetings in Zoom when I'm used to popping by someone's desk. So just some of those things. And then we've just tried to, now that we're in the hybrid world, adapt and evolve those tools to keep supporting them with that. I have one other question. One thing that really stuck out to me in this interview was you talked about applying the 80-20 rule Mm -hmm. to overcome perfectionism specifically in programs and feedback. So I'd love to hear you talk about that a bit. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we've it's, it's become such a thing for me and the work that I've done is actually we've actually taken it to a kind of a company culture perspective as well. Yeah, I mean, I've, again, recovering overachiever, perfectionist, people pleaser. Um, so there's that loaded into this system that uh, wasn't serving me, I realized for a while. And I would get all this wonderful feedback on programs, but that one line of feedback that was just a little Mm -hmm. nasty, wasn't in service, a little nasty would just destroy me. And I noticed that. And then I had to take a step back and I just had one of those kind of aha moments one day where I just said, you know, 80% of our people are going to get something from these programs a little bit to a a great degree. And they're going to get something. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be about 20% who quite frankly, don't give a damn. Or just in a fixed place where they're like, I got nothing to work on. I'm just going to check the box, say I went to that thing, but I'm not going to do anything differently. And I had to just acknowledge that there are these kind of two camps. And I said, you know, I'm designing and doing this work for the 80%. For the 20%, 
I wish them well. I hope that they get moved at some point in time, but I'm trying to shift that 80%. Doing that, it freed me to not redesign an entire program based on one person's feedback of what they wanted. Because that's what I noticed. My team and I were trying to address all feedback. And then we had a Frankenstein kind of program. And we were like, what are we doing here? And so in doing that, it's been able to have us sort of evolve and tweak programs that make sense for the 80%, but not let kind of that that 20% derail us. And also for me, it's also helped me like where we put our time and energy. I was in um, a coaching conversation with someone the other day that was very clear when they had zero desire to be coached. They were right. doing checkbox activity. And I was like, okay, well, this is not a good use of my time or their time. And I was able to just say, look, when you're committed to this process, I'm there. But that for me fell into the 20% that... I could have spent six months to a year with this person and they probably wouldn't have shifted because they had zero desire to shift. So it's also kind of an energy management thing. Uh, We've also sort of taken it company-wide to said, look, there's some things that good enough is okay. There's Mm -hmm. other things that being perfect is needed. Be discerning about what is that that needs to be perfect and not treat everything has to be perfect when it could be okay to pilot and iterate and prototype. And that was also really freeing for an organization with a lot of overachieving, people-pleasing perfectionists mm-hmm. to give them that permission to prototype and take risks, risks in certain places and be really clear and explicit about what those places were. I know you're speaking to the souls of a lot of people on this call when you're how liberating <laughs> that actually is. And, you know, I always think about it as, you know, when you do something like this, a third of the people are going to be like, they're like, I love it because they're showing up because of it. And then there's going to be a third to your point, or you say 20, a third, that's, it doesn't matter what you do. But then on the bell curve, the middle third is kind of like how I think that's who you're fighting for. You know, they had a good engagement, they're on the fence. And that's what, when you do things post that intervention, you kind of win those people over. So it's more about, you know, fighting for the 66 versus the 33 lost sheep that have no choice because they haven't had the pain to even want to change, you know? So like, Figure that out and come back when you've been hurt enough, you know, so I can so relate to that. I think we've David has his hand up. I mean, I love what you're saying. I have a question for you in terms of that 20 percent, because I think, you know, sometimes we know that they cannot be ignored. And so my question is, like, (laughs) how do you address that 20 percent? So as a quick example, I was working with a client recently and it was similar conversation where they were like, well, I'm just going to focus on the majority. And that 10, 20%, I'm just not even going to worry about them. And then I showed them their own data. And that 10, 20% are those who have been there 15 years plus. So clearly, they have a large influence on those who are within that 80% who've been there within the last five to 10 years. So I told them, I said, "I, I respect what you're doing, but you cannot ignore that group because you will regret that decision. So what are some of the things you've done? to address that 20% that could potentially be very disruptive? Oh, that's such a good question because you're right. Not all 20% is created equal in that regard, like what you found in your data, which I think is very helpful. So I do try to separate out the 20% that are sort of the naysayer. The 20%, as you said, the people who've been there for a long time, I think is a very important segment. So those are the individuals, and this definitely happens, is I try to find those individuals and I have a one-on-one with them. And I say, hey, I would love to understand. Sounds like you have this perspective here. And I'm like, help me understand. And I really just do some deep listening with them and really try to understand what are their barriers for them being on board? What is the the concern they have? And oftentimes in those one-on-one conversations where I'm really listening and reflecting back, I find that they have an assumption that's inaccurate. They had a bad experience from somewhere else. 
they have a fear or concern they haven't feel it has been heard. And so typically in those conversations, I can get them to a better place. And those are, I like to do as a one-off in those cases like that. I do think for me, you know, sometimes it's finding that 20% that are like, is there a percentage of those that are just toxic and damaging, like that are actually doing harm? And then I work with the HR business partners and the managers to say, hey, this is what we're seeing. And this is the observation we have. And this is actually, I worry for the teams and individuals if this person is not kind of coached. So it's, it's really kind of picking apart that 20%. And usually there's times when I know, I know some of my 20 percenters and I know them well, and they're some of my greatest, you know, my greatest colleagues, because I can go to them and I'm like, okay, I saw some feedback. I have a feeling you might have some concerns about this thing. And they're like, yes, thank you. I'm like, okay, let's hear it. And I do find a lot of times it's just a misunderstanding of something or an assumption they're not being heard. So that's helped me address those. I do think yeah, you have to figure out what's that 20% that does need a voice and needs to be really recognized. And to your point, if they're leading other people and say, what would it take for you to feel like you could sponsor this and champion this? And then it's really working with them. I would love, it would go a long way. I think if you were to share this with the team or your insights, and then I sort of try to get them into sort of a leader role in doing that, which then again, helps them feel sort of seen and heard. That's just some of the things I've done. Thank you. Appreciate it. Awesome question. One other question that I see in the chat here that I know also showed up in our LinkedIn group yeah. from Inseta. She said, how did you develop your high potential program? I would like to incorporate that at my plant as well. I'm going to drop my email in here. So I will send you all the things. <laughs> I will help you out. At a very high level, I took a big step back and tried to look at what are some of the best practices from these programs, which measurement was key, impact was key. And then I looked at what were the kind of the needs of the people and the needs of the business and really made it a curated experience, made it something that you were invited into. And it's become the thing that every year there's a nominee process and it's like this coveted spot. So there's a bunch of things I did, but it also took probably, I'll be honest with you, six to eight months of building it, reviewing with executive teams and sponsors and and getting it launched and running, but it's been a fantastic program. So if you want to send me an email, I will I will send you all sorts of stuff that could be helpful. Kim, do you want to come on and ask a question? I sure do. Hi, Bria. Nice <laughs> Hi, to meet you. Kim, I have a question. So we also have almost the exact same programs you just listed. One of the things that we're young in is the business maturity on selection. And so I'm curious how you've been able to and I say this sort of crass, but like we kind of do this, ooh, they're going to be a leader. And we have criteria. It doesn't feel as objective as it could be. And so I'm just curious, how do we do that? And then how do you message when someone isn't selected who is already shared with their leader that they'd like to grow people leadership? Yes. Because that seems to be a, a challenge for us because here at Lippert, leadership is defined as influence. And so we believe that it, you are not, kind of succumb to hierarchy. If you're working at Lippert, you are a leader in some way, shape or form. And that can sometimes backfire because then everyone is wanting exposure or access to some of these program pieces. So anyway, I'd love your thoughts there. Yeah. So in terms of objective criteria, we looked at um, engagement scores for their teams. We looked at 360 data around the individuals. We looked at, we were doing performance ratings at the time. We got rid of those. We looked at performance ratings, and then we just looked at overall kind of performance in role and potential, both of those. And through those, we were able to really kind of 
curate down for each function. And each function was given a number of spots, depending on their size, a small list of people. We'd look at things like diversity. We'd look at succession plans. We would look at, you know, really trying to like make sure the people we were nominating, we could see that path to them for succession. And we could see that clear opportunity. I had like a no tolerance policy for like, uh, this person, we need to just throw them this bone to keep to retain, <laughs> right? Or this person's kind of rough around the edges, but if we put them in your program, they okay. might like, no, I'm not here to fix this person. I'm not here to appease this person from because they're not going to get promoted. Like, so I had to be really discerning and push back on executives and leaders around and the HR business partners to really make sure this cohort was a really truly um you know, cohort of the right people that were there for the right reasons. So those are some of the things that we did on that front. I think there was a second part to your question that I missed though. Yes. How do you communicate those who are not selected, who may have already shared with their leader, I'd like to grow. And it's sort of like a not yet response. Yeah. So with that, we would sometimes say, Hey, you're, you're next in line for next year for it. Or sometimes like, perfect example, someone on my team is very ambitious, high performer, but I'm like, you know, the program, I mean, we've designed the program. It's not going to be a surprise to you. Like, you're not going to get a lot out of this because you already know like what's going to happen. So instead I said, what I'm going to do for you is give you some special other projects and assignments and structure opportunities to give you more visibility and more, all these other things. And that's what we've asked other leaders to do is to say, you know, for these individuals, you need to have a plan. If they truly are your high potentials, you have five high potentials, you only have three spots. You need a plan to help support them in their development and growth so that they're like, hey, not that for this year, this program, maybe for next year, but in the meantime, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And, and just the messaging around, you know, we have so many great people. We have to, you know, look at the diversity and the mix and the time and role and things like that. Most of the time that it's been okay because we've been able to get them in other things. But I will tell you the businesses that don't follow through with getting them on other stretch assignments, that's hurt them in some ways. So, you know, we totally try to coach them and the business partners on, on doing that. I really appreciate your answer. And I, it seems like we have a lot in common, like even though we're different industries, but just kind of where you're at with soul and fire. So appreciate your answer and would love to connect. Uh, It looks like we're neighbors in the Bay area. So fantastic. Okay, great. Wonderful. I would love that. Thank you. I think we have time to field one more question here. So here's one from the chat that I really liked. How are you measuring behaviors and behavior change? And how are you holding people accountable? Behavior change measurement, right? So we have a lot of questions. We've spent a lot of time on our engagement survey and our poll surveys around behavioral type questions. So we're able to see heat map of leaders and teams where there's maybe not the right behaviors. I do also think, I mean, it's a third of your bonus is how you show up in your behaviors. So we really look at that and we're very clear about our values, which have a competency model and specific behaviors. So we really are looking at that and measuring against that. And that's, again, a third of your bonus is around that. And we've really just used the term like, you know, the genius jerks, like that does not going to work, right? So we have to be really hold a hard line with some of those. And we have had to part ways with some people that were brilliant, but the mm-hmm. damage that they caused was so significant in the way they showed up and behaved that no amount of coaching and feedback was going to get them there because there was zero desire to change, right? So I think that we have to do that consistently. We have some leaders that do that better than others. Mm-hmm. And my also my thing is whenever a individual or a leader shows up in a way with their behaviors inconsistent, what's needed, especially for a leader that's visible, I'm like, okay, let's talk about your repair. 
Let's talk about how you're going to go back and you're going to own it. You're going to repair because you going back and repairing speaks volumes. And all those leaders said, wow, that I got more recognition from that repair that I did that I'm like, I'm actually humbled. Like, I don't feel like I deserve it. And I was like, take it in, just take it in. Cause this is what good leaders do when you have those moments where you're not at your best that you own it and you take it and you go back to your teams. And so that's another way that we've tried to really do that is like, okay, great. You have an opportunity to clean that up. I want me to help you, you know, want me to coach you with that, but this is yours yeah. and this is what we expect for you to do. So that's another way that we've tried to hold leaders accountable. That's great. Yeah. So we have probably five to 10 more questions in the chat, but we're out of time for now. So we'll go ahead and close it out for the day. Thanks so much for sharing all of your insights. It was such a great session. Hopefully if people stick around after, we can keep answering some questions. And obviously anyone, feel free to email me. I will send you anything you possibly can and help you (laughs) support. I love, um, and I think this is a great community for us to do that. So Dwayne, do you have any final words to close us out? Yeah, our closing comments for uh, this month is, you know, we're essentially, we have a third of the year left over and we do so much pouring into the people that we lead. This is a gut check for us. And it's to ask ourselves, you know, right now, if your team had an opportunity to hire their leader, would they hire you back? Would you be that individual? So think about that and then ask yourself, you know, if so, what are you doing to do more of that? If you think there's a gap, then what can you do by the end of the year to kind of chew that up? But that is the thing that we need to ask ourselves on a, on a daily basis. If they got a chance to hire their own leader, would they hire you? So let's make sure that we're being the individuals that we're trying to inspire. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Culture Code Podcast. Are you looking to build, refine, or revamp a training program? We team up with companies like Northwestern Mutual, Sinios Health, and Duck Creek Technologies to roll out highly engaging training series for emerging leaders, new managers, women in leadership, high potential managers, sales enablement, and more. Check it out at leadx.org. What makes these series so uniquely engaging? We help you build a full system of development that leverages our cutting edge platform and world-class training. We blend together world-class cohort-based virtual training and group coaching, personalized nudges, micro-learning, and on-demand office hour style coaching. Go check it out at leadx.org.